says to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. If we've learnt anything in the story of Jacob over these last 13 weeks, is that God is anything but distant or embarrassed or disinterested when it comes to the mess and the muck of our world and our lives. That he's not too big for the mess and the muck, rather it's usually in the mess and the muck that God sovereignly works to bring people back to himself, back to faith in his promises. And so here we have the end of the Jacob story, where we've seen over the course of decades God working in the mess and the muck, to turn particularly Jacob back to him, that Jacob would be transformed from the grasper at God's blessing to the one who strives with the Lord. He doesn't do it perfectly, he's not sinless, he's not perfectly righteous and holy like God is, but He is facing by God's grace and God's sovereign choice in the right direction as God works on his life over many, many years. And the genealogy of Esau, his brother, his twin brother, his older brother, is what brings this part of Genesis to a close. The genealogy of Esau that we have in front of us, and I think Naomi could have very easily read to the end uh, better than I could have, But in this genealogy, this long list of people and places and names, we're reminded about some of the ways that God is at work in the mess and the muck. And we're reminded about God's sovereign choice of people to bring them graciously back to himself. We're reminded in the the genealogy of Esau that God's sovereign choice was that Jacob would carry the covenant responsibility. He would take the promises and the blessing. The older son, Esau, would serve the younger son, Jacob. That he would take on the line of promise. And one of the reminders that we get as we look at this genealogy of Esau is that the good news of Jesus is for all nations. Uh, that God's promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob wasn't to limit his saving work to a particular people, but that through those particular people, his saving work would go to the ends of the earth, to all nations. God is seeking a people from every tribe and nation and language. And verse 1 speaks of another nation, the nation that comes from Esau, that is, the nation of Edom, who would be Israel's troublesome neighbours for the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Derek Kidner, one of the great Bible teachers, says this about this chapter, he says, the brotherhood of Esau and Jacob, living on in the nations of Edom and Israel, is never forgotten in the Old Testament. And this chapter with its painstaking detail, is a witness to the sense of brotherhood, which will later come to surface in diplomacy and in law and in national feeling and in conflict. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says to his, the people of Israel, he says, do not despise your brothers, the nation of Edom. Remember they are your brothers. Do not despise them but keep brotherly affection even amidst conflict and strife. 
that follows this family line. And so as we come to the uh, genealogy of Esau and you think, uh, what are we to make of this? Uh, I want us to have Martin Luther's challenge in our mind to not let our thoughts about God be too human. To think that God has to act and be in the same way that we would if we were God. And to not have our thoughts of God be too human in remembering that God works through mess and through muck. Okay, so here's the three things. You see them on the screen. Your thoughts of God are too human. That's our way into this passage. And the three things I want us to see is human responsibility, human appetites, and human successes. Uh, I don't know what you think about immediately when you think of Esau, but uh, my thoughts go back to the beginning. He's been quite absent in the last 13 chapters. We saw him last week at the deathbed of his father, reunited with his brother. They had reconciled in chapter 33, remember? But before that, we hadn't seen him for 20 years since he had that murderous rage against his brother Jacob because his brother Jacob had swindled him out of the family blessing, had tricked his father... But more than that, Jacob had taken the birthright, the place of honour and family, uh, the family line through which the promises of God would go. Jacob had taken that, or rather Esau had let it go, selling it to his brother some decades earlier for a bowl of lentil stew of all things. Jacob was responsible for the way that he went about that. He was a deceiver. He lied, as did his mother. And he's responsible for that. He wears the consequences in being sent away and being under attack for 20 years. But even as Jacob is held responsible for his grasping and deception, Esau is held responsible because he let go of his birthright. Remember back in chapter 25, Jacob is the one who, who took the birthright, as in uh, he, he uh, convinced Esau to sell it to him. But chapter 25 made clear that Esau was responsible for that decision. He despised his birthright, says the Bible. Belonging to the family of God wasn't an important thing for him. The things of God weren't important to him. He held loosely to the things of God. He held tightly to the things of this world. That characterised the person of Esau. And those decisions that he's responsible for, to sell the birthright, to be concerned about his stomach, to go and marry foreign women, those decisions that Esau makes, he's responsible for and confirm in his life and in history the decision of God, the choice of God, that Jacob would be the one that carries on the covenant line. And so what does Hebrews chapter 12 tell us about Esau? The best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. And so we go to Hebrews 12 where we see this. The writer to the Hebrews says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one's sexually immoral. Or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son? 
Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Esau couldn't look beyond his stomach. He was so caught up in the pursuits and the passions of his body that he held loosely to the things of God and the family of God. And Esau stands in the Bible and in history as a great warning to you and me to not hold loosely to the things of God and the family of God, to not give up our place as part of God's inheritance of the saints for the sake of fleeting passions and pleasures and pursuits in this world. That's the second thing I want us to see, the human appetites that drove Esau and that drive this family nation of Edom. Because it wasn't just the appetite of his stomach that drove him away from God, like too many in our world, it was sex and relationships that drove him away from the family of God. Verse 2 of chapter 36, Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan. And if you're kind of, um, I don't know what kind of brain you have to have to do this, but if you've kind of got a whiteboard at home, and you've drawn up all the family trees of all these people mentioned in chapter 36 and you're keeping track of all the names in Genesis, I'm sure someone's done it, you'll work out that there's more than just the wives mentioned here. That Esau's gone to the Canaanites to seek wives and it's so many that they're not even all listed here. Right? He married multiple Canaanite wives in, an, in disobedience to God. And in contrast to the progress of the family of promise, if in pursuing these wives of foreign gods, whose lives and whose practices, whose family and whose religions would distance him even further from the family of God. Right? Would confirm him in that direction, away from God's promises confirming God's election and his sovereign choice of Jacob. And even when Esau sought to fix it, when he realised he made a mistake and he needed to marry someone in the family, who does he marry? Verse 3, the daughter of Ishmael, who, like himself, was the brother who wasn't to carry the covenant promises, who wasn't to carry the line of promise in the family of God. Esau is a a cautionary tale. To not let human appetites and our desire for satisfaction in this world to send us in a direction away from the people of God and the promises of God. Seeking fleeting pleasure in this life is not worth the eternal forfeit of your soul. Food and sex and marriage and land and children, they are all good things given by a creator God who loves us to be enjoyed within his good design and his gracious boundaries that he gives for our freedom and for our joy. And we're meant to receive those things, food and sex and marriage and land and families, we're meant to receive those things with thanksgiving to the God who gives. We're not meant to grasp at them as ultimate things. 
in defiance of God, which is what Esau has done. This scene reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. He says, I've told Uh, I have often told you before and I now tell you again even with tears many live as enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction their God is their stomach like Esau and their glory is in their shame their mind is set on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the saviour from there the Lord Jesus Christ. Esau reminds us to check our hope. What is it that we've set our hope on? Is it the satisfaction of those human appetites and earthly pleasures? Is our God our stomach? Uh, When I think about these things, there are two particular friends that come immediately to mind and caused me to share the tears of the Apostle Paul. Both had significant impact on me as a young man. Both professed faith in the Lord Jesus, and both loved the fleeting pleasures of this world too much, and ended up giving Jesus the flick. For the sake of money and cars, for the sake of sex and prestige, they ditched Jesus, Because their God was their stomach. Their minds were set on earthly things and their citizenship was not in heaven. It's not worth it to forfeit your very self, your eternal soul, for the sake of fleeting pleasures in this world. And Esau is a cautionary tale. But it's just it's not just human appetites that Esau should cause us to question but human success. The family line of Esau, as we have it in chapter 36, it's an impressive account. Uh, Look at um, verse 6. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock, right? The story of Esau is not a story of abject failure and poverty in a worldly sense. In a worldly sense, the story of Esau is one of prosperity and success. It's one of power and privilege. It's one of wealth. It's a story of human success. Deuteronomy goes on to explain how Esau's family came to take over the whole Horite kingdom of the princesses that he married. And chapter 31 tells us that these are the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. You think at the time of, of the people of Israel, when they don't have a king... What is the picture of national life for Israel? Well, in the chapters to come in Genesis, it's one of famine. And Genesis ends, spoiler alert, with the family of Israel captive in Egypt for 500 years. 
and then wandering in the desert and then being a nomadic people without a place, under attack. And they look at the family of Esau, the nation of Edom, and they see kings and they see land and they see prosperity. And the challenge of the scriptures is to say, when you see land and kings and prosperity, that is not the sign of God's blessing. And when you see famine and you see slavery and you see wandering, that is not the absence of God's blessing. We know that psychologically often, but we struggle to know it in our hearts as we pray for the human successes, as we pray for the security, for the family, for the power, for the privilege, for the position, for the job. All fine things to pray for, but listen to the cautionary tale of the Edomites, whose human successes were not a sign of God's blessing and whose human successes they took. They took the blessing. They took the land. They took the power. They took the size. They took the money. They took the kings. And they stood in opposition to the purposes and the promises of God. In the book of Numbers, the Edomites block Israel as they flee slavery in Egypt. In Malachi and Obadiah, Edomites are judged because they blocked Israel's escape when they were being pursued by the Babylonians. They stood there and watched Israel get slaughtered and God says they will be held to account. The book of Obadiah, God says to them, you think that you're secure. Why do they think they're secure? This is the Edomites. They're the the people of the fortified cliffs of Petra, right? where you see that the, the, the cliffs of Edom, that God says you trust in your fortified cliffs. Have a look at the screen. This is a picture. Do you know Petra? There's the fortified cliffs of Edom, where they thought we're untouchable, we're unbeatable. We have size and strength. We have the right geography. And God says you stood and watched your brothers be slaughtered and you will be judged for it. The trajectory of Esau and the nation of Edom is to take human success, land, people, money, power, strength, and stand in opposition to God and his purposes. And the trajectory of these Edomite kings taking their stand against God and his people takes us all the way to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, who's not born in a position of power, who's not born in privilege. He's born in poverty. He's born in the outskirts of Nowheresville with nothing. And what is it but an Edomite king, Herod the Great, who would seek to wipe him out along with all the other infant boys of the time. 
the history of Esau and the Edomites is to take human success and to take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. So don't take material blessing as a sign of God's favour. And don't take material lack as a sign of God's displeasure. That human success in this world is to trust in the promises of God and to take your place in the family of God. That is human success. To set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. And to wait for your saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. story of Esau and the nation of Edom it's a cautionary tale of human responsibility that God will hold us to account for the decisions that we make of human appetites don't let the fleeting pleasures of this world disqualify you from the grace of God and human successes don't pray and plan and work towards material blessing thinking that that is God's favour but trust in the Lord and take your place in his family. But there's more than just a cautionary tale in this account. It's a little note of hope that I was tickled by during the week. Because in the midst of all these names and all these places, you have in verse 28, the land of us outside of Israel where at the time of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, we know that a righteous man named Job lived. That just because this is not the line of promise does not mean that God is not at work. Here's one of the things that we struggle with. When we read the story of Esau and Jacob, we see God's gracious and sovereign choice of Jacob to be the family line of promise and, and, and Esau, the older, to miss out. We see that as somehow narrowing the lens of salvation. That limits the way God's salvation works in the world and in people. But here's the thing, because it's God's sovereignty and because it's God's grace, it's his divine election, it's his gracious choice, that it's not based on merit, it's not based on self-righteousness. It's not secured through uh, religious pedigree. It's not grasped at with power or privilege. That means that it widens the scope of God's salvation. Because it's not based on any human attribute that we bring to the table. It's based on God's sovereignty and his grace. And so as we look to the nations of the world, we don't look to their family heritage to see if they belong to the family of God. We freely offer God's sovereign salvation to anyone who will listen, knowing that even in the land of us, there's a righteous man named Job who trusted in the promises of God. And even at the ends of the earth in Petersham, there are people who, by God's gracious choice, have come to faith in the Saviour Christ. God's salvation isn't narrow. 
because of his divine election, because it's divine election, his salvation is wide. Every people and nation, every tribe and language gathered around the throne of Christ forever. The family line of Esau is a cautionary tale, but it's also a picture of hope reminding us that the God of the nations is seeking his people. Even here in Petersham. And if we think that he can't step into the mess and the muck of our lives and the mess and the muck of the inner west and the mess and the muck of people who seem far off, then we forget how this God works. And we forget what this God has done. And we forget that he took on flesh and stepped into the mess and the muck. That by his grace and his sovereign choice, he would save many, many people. Paul says in Romans 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, including this genealogy, So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. So that the promises made to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob might be confirmed. And moreover that the nations, us might glorify God for his mercy. That's what we're meant to do as we come to the end of the story of Jacob. Glorify God for his mercy, knowing that his promises to the patriarchs have been confirmed in us as we're gathered to the family of God, even from the ends of the earth and continue to hold out his gracious salvation to everyone around us, knowing that he is the God of all faithfulness, so he'll keep saving people. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we thank you so much that you are not beyond or disinterested or removed from the mess and the muck of our world and our lives, but you've stepped into it in the Lord Jesus. Help us to hear the caution and the warning from the nation of Edom and the person of Esau, but help us too to not narrow your salvation, to not let our thoughts of you be too small or too human, to know that you are the sovereign, gracious God of the nations as we keep holding out the word of life and hope to those around us, knowing that you are the God of all faithfulness. Help us, we pray, to glorify you because of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.